Welcome to the DFD Podcast, where we discuss all things dairy farming. This week's episode is brought to you by Suregain and Trow Nutrition and their dealer partners. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hey everybody out there in uh, Dairyland, welcome back to the DFD Podcast, where we're talking all things dairy. So earlier on this week on Twitter, I put out a poll uh, just asking producers what uh, what profitability means to them. So uh, we had some really, really good feedback and quite a few, few people uh, chimed in on it. And it seemed like everybody's kind of focus is on lower cost of production and lower uh, dollars per liter of milk. So I uh, thought with that, I invited our guest Tony Hall on. Tony is a forage expert with uh, Lelement Animal Nutrition. In uh, He's based out of Syracuse, New York. Uh, but Tony's main focus is on making high-quality forage. And I think to be profitable on uh, dairy, it's kind of the, one of the key pillars. So, Tony, why don't you uh, say hi and introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, Keith, good afternoon and hello, everybody. And, uh, you know, thanks for this opportunity. Um, it's, it's kind of a perennial subject in a way. Uh, it, it never goes away, which kind of says to us two things. It's an opportunity, but it also means that maybe if we haven't got where we need to be, you know, with the forage quality base, it's still something uh, that we need to talk about. I will, um, I will stroke your uh, your base a little bit and say that generally speaking, you have a pretty good handle on this on the, uh, you know, uh, the Canadian side compared to certain areas uh, south of the St. Lawrence. But I'm not looking for a competition here. Uh, there's really areas of uh, improvement on that side of the equation, and. Um, it opens up a discussion, Keith, for you and I. Um, we'll throw a few ideas out that you and I can discuss and converse and debate on, you know, because obviously it's um, usually a main focus is corn silage base, and that brings in its own unique challenges. But, you know, a lot of farms make dry hay crop or, or, or more often haylage as well, which is kind of a multi-cut system. And the way it's made risks all contamination and needs field wilting. So, you know, suddenly just in the opening, Keith, we're... We're, we're identifying just a couple of key areas, just if you like, on forage selection and how we handle that forage at, at point of harvest and how we steer that, you know, towards that uh, that, that end point to get a good palatable, digestible material. And as you, as you and I are both aware, and then I'll hand back to you, you know, a lot of it is just what the harvest state we, we take to, uh, you know, have that crop at, at the right measure for us, you know, the right dry matter for corn silage, and uh, you know the right weather pattern for the haylage to give us a kind of break for field wilting. So there's there's quite a large basket of you know forage quality sort of areas to unpack if you like. Let's start at right at the very top. What is the key to making the best silage possible? Like what is it that you see in your travels around the world that every person that has high quality forage? What are what are the commonalities? Yeah, so I mean, and, and it's it's plural, not singular. Just as you say, it's it's it's, it's commonality. Uh, and I would be the first to admit, unlike working under a covered manufacturing system, churning out nuts and bolts, we are at the bakers of the weather, you know, in the in the dairy and beef forage making scene. But in terms of looking at and silage, if we first of all understand our remit, you know, we want to take that plant from the field, get it chopped, and ensure a successful fermentation. Uh, some of the commonalities that we can think about would be time you know the quicker we can get things done the better off we're going to be let's take a couple of real world examples just to focus down with corn silage you know we want to be in there at the right time so we're looking if you like at uh, what those dry down dates are hopefully you know a frost or mother nature doesn't throw the curveball and i'll just float an idea here again that you and i in the 
client-based can debate. You know, I, I personally, you know, in terms of optimizing that relationship between minimizing seepage or having non-effluent or seepage if we can avoid it, getting the best starch energy yield, you know, per hectare, I'm looking at a uh, 34 to 38% dry matter window, you know, for the corn silage. And, you know, uh, that, that seems to stand up at least to inspection, both by academia and, uh, you know, and, and, and far farmers alike. I think with the uh, small grain haylage conundrum, we have a different challenge because it's not drying for us in the field, right? We're going to have to go out there and cut it, spread it out, get the weather on our side, you know, get that dried. But again, I think we have to have some, you know, some, some optimum thoughts in our mind about where we'd want to bring this in. We really would like to avoid seepage because that is a, an energy and dry matter loss. But I think also we'd all be aware of our old friend Clostridia butyric acid, which is more prone in that type of crop, less so in corn silage for obvious reasons. The risk of soil contamination with haylage. So we're really looking to get some of these crops in. You know, and I'm talking here bunks, piles and bags around about, you know, 35, 40. But obviously if we had towers and those sort of structures, um, a little bit drier. And, and that's where time can get away because with the haylage, the field wilting would, would take some time to be done. We like to think hay in a day, but you and I have had lots of conversations on the road. Sometimes if it has to go overnight, it's not a hanging offence if we can get it in promptly the next day. So time, time and its various assets to get that done encourage a short, sharp fermentation so we can get the first part of the process done. That would be uh, a primary commonality that, you know, we could have this discussion around the world uh, uh, and this would be a common conversation. What are some other things like, I know one thing we kind of talk about here is about uh, kind of minimizing shrink and, and, yeah. and I think one of the keys with that is increasing packing density. I think I like, from what I see, um, I think sometimes like going back to your time thing, I think farmers get in a, get into a hurry and they're bringing maybe more um, feed into the bunk than what the the packing tractor can handle. And I kind of see that as a bottleneck sometimes, but like what, like in your ideal situation, where do you want to see, you know, haylage or corn silage, you know, be at a, at a density? Yeah. And, and, and you highlighted a point and I think it, it, it makes us both smile. It always makes me smile because this time thing never goes away. You've, you've, you've highlighted a, a real clever link there between, you know, the time we need to get things done, which is quickly, but then the time pressure at one of the bottlenecks on the farm. Um, and, and it's probably one of the most important areas. You know, if, if we move away from the field now and what's being brought in, I, I would, I would say Keith, that if we thought about it around the world, generally speaking, there'll be minor exceptions, but generally speaking, packing density is, is, is the weak link on the farm. In terms of getting it done, what it does in terms of dry matter loss, we'll unpack that in a minute, and then how we can in interact that with, with rate of feed out and managing it. But if we focus on your, your primary point and, and, and pick some numbers, you know, the, the old school thoughts from Journal of Dairy Science when Kurt Ruppel did his original work was, you know, eh, 14, 15 pounds of dry matter per cubic foot. So, you know, in metric where that's dry matter, of course, we're thinking, 225, 230, 235 kilogram a meter cube. But if you, if you look at that relationship, friends, it's really a linear one, and there's still a lot to be had by um, going a lot, a lot drier. Uh, you know, Keith and I in the field would use the term dry matter density, but now, you know, people are thinking uh, porosity, and uh, you'll hear that term banded about. And really, that's just fresh weight density. But if we focus on the numbers that we want to think about, I, I think 
we need to get somewhere, Keith, between about 17 and 18 pounds of dry matter per cubic floor. I mean, in excess of a 260 kilogram of dry matter per meter cube. And I know farmers are going to say, oh, here he goes again. He doesn't have to do it and he's throwing numbers out. And they're absolutely right, but it, it really is just a case of, of, of doing the arithmetic with you and your colleagues, making sure there's enough of the right number of tractors and the right amount of tractor weight at any given time and getting that packed in. And you, and you know, the, the, the number one thing here that can really make a big difference is, is layer thickness. It, it sounds obvious and, and we all pay lip service. If, if you and I did a quick survey and said, you know, what layer should we be packing out? Everybody's gonna tell us, you know, six inches. And when you go out there and see what's being done in a rush, you know, sometimes six inches can be very achievable with corn silage, it's fairly friable, but with haylage, the way it's handled, it can be a lot more difficult. So I would say taking time, you know, at this stage and, and, and getting high packing densities um, is going to pay dividends. If, if we don't do that, Keith, we've got two losses along the way. So anytime we're thinking about profit, we're all the time thinking about hidden losses. Because when we think hidden losses, we've then got to make that up as dry shell cornmeal if it got you know burnt away. So let's let's think of what those two losses could be. You know, that Kurt Ruppel work showed us there was just losses there of, of digestible dry matter in store if we didn't get those packing densities up. Because part of that was oxygen stuck in there would burn off some energy before the oxygen was, was, was at least depleted uh, and that would be in that, that that store before we even started feeding it and then there's a very strong interrelationship from recent published work that you'd be aware of between you know rate of feed out and packing density you've got great packing density you've got a little bit of leeway on how fast you need to get through that phase and how, how you can manage it so i think you've hit one of the number one areas and the next one would be sealing up of course but you know we're packing this before we seal up. So packing density is is is, is the number one thing, really. Yeah, and, and you touched on something really interesting there is we're not always just measuring, you know, our profitability, but mitigating uh, storage losses. And I think that's one of those things that we need to put more weight on. Like, I don't know, like, do you know what land prices are typically in uh, your area in New York where you're at? Yeah, I mean, there's some hard, there's some hard heavy scrabble land, but there's some really good uh, land as well that would jostle between vegetables and dairy. Uh, there's been pressure on it recently, but you could be anywhere between, you know, six thousand US dollars an acre, uh, and certainly higher towards double figures. I can think of some key areas between Rochester and, you know, Buffalo that the land could serve the, you know, the high high value vegetable market, say the Wegmans supermarket, or it could be in dairy. But, but either way, it's, it's, it's going to be pricey to get into it. You know, it, it won't be as expensive as, as landing on Ontario, Canada. But, you know, a hard, hard scrabble land, you know, for rearing heifers on is going to be $1,500, There's your range. Yeah, and I know, like, if we're looking here in kind of the the heartland of dairy production in Ontario, you know, we're we're seeing numbers, you know, $30,000-plus an acre Canadian. So, you know, that's $20,000, U.S. Yeah. Yeah. an acre so how do we maximize our acreage to the best way possible right and that and this yeah. is just where i'm thinking like if if you're going to be limited on land base if you don't have all this extra land to grow crop on how are we gonna manage that in the bunk so that what we put in we get the most amount out and i was actually just doing a uh doing a couple presentations on shrink and it doesn't matter how good you pack it how well you inoculate it, how fast you get it covered, you're going to lose some. And it's yeah. just, I guess, you know, managing 
how much, uh, how much are you going to lose? So I guess it goes back to, you know, your first loss is your, your best loss. So let's try and, uh, try and stick around and try and lose as little as possible. Right. So, yeah, well, you, you, you hit on a, a fascinating area because the first, the first thing I take from what you're saying, Keith, and again, we've, we've chatted about this over the years is, you know, there's nothing hundred percent efficient in dairy farming. It's biology first of all, but secondly, a fair question hidden, hidden in your comment would be, you know, how low could we realistically get it, right? And yeah. uh, there's a guy who um, has a, a 20,000 cow dairy unit in a place called Liberal, Kansas. A lot of people will know him. His name is Greg Petard. And he, he, he was the guy on the East Coast who was behind the, um, you know, the money corrected milk. So he was very financially astute and aware of, you know, how you can make a profit with milk. And then, he, you know, he, he put his money where his mouth was, excuse the pun. And he's involved in this day-to-day management of this farm. He's focused very tightly on forage. So to give you and your the client base uh, an idea of this, Greg said to himself, if I look at, you know, what I've grown, what I'm harvesting and what I'm feeding out, and if I look at the differences along the way, how tight can I make this? Now, this is just on the forage side, Keith. It doesn't include, like, you know, the commodity side yep. or, the center or, or the feeding side, because yeah, there are other losses there as well. But if we just answer your question about the forage side, you know, Greg is really efficient, knows his stuff, been doing this for a few decades. You know, 8%, 8% is, is, is about his number. That's as tight as it can get. And that's a good number. It doesn't sound great, but you, you made the point before. Let's think of a couple. There are obligatory losses. Um, so l- let's just say you get the field wilting done. You can look at some of the work done by Boriani and Journal of Dairy Science. They can only be a couple of percent there. If you can get fast field wilting done, or take that corn silage and the right dry matter with no seepage, they can be low. Now, they can be bad if you get caught out with the weather, but we're going for best case scenario here. Let's just assume you get a, 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 a super packing density. You're going to have some obligatory fermentation losses, like you said. You know, even if you've got you know, the, the world's best inoculant, we know it will drive the pH down. The work published by John Geezer recently will show three or 4% losses. So you can see how Greg's number comes to the fore. You've got two or three in the field, and then you've got you know three or four in the in the stack there before you do anything right. That that that's about seven straight away. So he's he's aiming for that 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 that, that number there. Now the the sad truth is, Keith, if, if we're honest about it, we don't always get the breaks with the weather we want. We don't always get the right people and equipment that we want. We don't always think about this sealing up. You know, side sheets roll over on the shoulders, top sheet, all the way, all the things that you and I like to like to talk about with clients and try and encourage them to do. So the, the, the question for you and I is how far away from that golden rule of 8% do, do, do we drift? You know, where we, you know, 20%. And my methods are simplistic, my friends, and it's time to cooperate. <laughs> what they knew they put in the bunk and what they knew through their, Easy feed, TMR, tracker feed, you name it, whatever, what they yep. set out because those two seldom match up and, and, and often we, we, we get a disparity of, of, of 20%. You know, and part of that is those losses I've described, but some of it, you and I have seen this, it's visual. We know some stuff is pitched from the sides or lost from the top or can't be used. It may or may not be credibly can go to the replacement ever's, but often it's just junk. So it, it, it's yep. easy to see that eight is hard to achieve, but it's a laudable target, but we could be as high as 20% loss. So what I, what I would say here, just to, just to enlarge this a bit, and I'm talking too much, but, you know, if, if I look in my world, South of St. Lawrence, and 
I am at seven US dollars per cow per day to feed a milk cow, right? And I've got to look at that over a year, but suddenly I've got a burden of, let's take that 8% off, we can't get it, but let's say I'm 20% of the, I'm 12% different. If I have 12% losses on top, that I've got to feed extra full meal for, or extra soy for. Yep. You know what I'm trying to say? That's, that, that's where the emphasis on making high quality products comes in, because it, it avoids the need to pull other commodities in that are going to need, be needed to make up the difference, because that's what the cows will tell us when the ration doesn't behave in practice as it looks like it should on paper. Yeah, and I know the smaller you get with ingredients, the more expensive they get. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. your forage, like as much as we talk about loss and things like that, your forage, I think, is still king or queen. Yeah. And uh, it, it it just keeps it keeps you from going to guys like me and 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 buying it, right? Like if you do a, a great job with corn silage, you know, you're going to have to buy less corn. I yeah, mean, there's absolutely. weather, there's weather and other factors in there that we just can't control, but, right. but I think focusing on the things that we can control and making sure that that forage goes up in the best way possible. I mean, it's just going to help uh, producers bottom line. So I guess with the shrink thing, like where, where should a producer focus on shrink? Like say, you know, you walk onto a farm, you, you do kind of initial assessment of, of bunk silos and things like that. And you notice, you know what, maybe the density isn't there or the covering isn't there. Like, like what's your best payback, I guess, is what I'm asking. Like what, what gives you your best bang for your buck with silage? The, 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 two, the two things you've highlighted there are, are, are the two key areas, uh, mainly because I mentioned before, there is actually a, a very well researched interrelationship between packing density and those in situ losses, but also the losses of feed out. And, uh, and we can think about this, you know, with, with, your, with your producers who are listening to us in a practical sort of way. We'll just, we'll just bandy some ideas about, you know, if your packing density is really good and, and you could only, you know, get through at five, five inches a day, you'll probably get away with it, at least, you know, while it's cool. If your packing density is really weak and oxygen gets in real quickly, you know, you're going to see that with temperature changes. and You're going to have to feed that faster. It, it, you know, the layout of the bunk of the design might not necessarily uh, allow that. And you, you'll see that on our side when you guys come, you know, south of the St. Lawrence, you'll see some farms that had to make a critical decision where they had a very wide feeding place. It was unstable in front of them. And so they've gone down in a corridor, if that makes sense, and have also left one side to be exposed to the elements. But that yep. was the decision that they took. So... I mean, I think if, if we take both your points together, packing density, um, at, at the point of time that, that, that it takes place to protect the mass and get the oxygen out of there, and that ties back into the ceiling, we'll circle that one back in a minute, but also, you know, the packing density re re relates to, to feed out. If we have weak packing density, it just puts the pressure on what the feed out rate should be. But then you can just tie that back, and all these things, Keith, are interrelated, aren't they? If we, if whatever packing density we've got, you know, this is an anaerobic process. What does that mean to, to our audience? Anaerobic means without oxygen, without air. You know, so what we want to do is get this thing sealed hermetically. The word hermetically meaning tight, nothing can get in or out. And that would mean the oxygen will get used up in the first two or three days after sheeting. And then it will be totally oxygen free. And without any leakage, nothing will change until we begin to open this bunk or this pile or this, or this bag of And I think a, a, a lot of the weaknesses, um, penny wise, pound foolish, the stakes are so high, okay, and I'm going to put some numbers on this in a moment, but to do a really good job sealing can, can get you right down to the 8% 
he do a really poor job feeling I don't know where the number finally stops. And, and if anybody doubts that, and I know there are people who do this really well and don't see this, but Keith, you and I would go on to business units from time to time, and we would see the top, tip of the shoulder, uh, and the sideways. And I, I'm, I'm the first to understand there are safety issues in terms of managing, managing shoulders. I, I, I get that, but it, it's going to be a waste if we can't get close to the packet or we don't get it sealed properly, right? Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, I always, I kind of, I look at some of these bunks out there and, you know, they're going, you know, twice the wall height and like how much, how much feed are you losing up there? Like, like how much feed are you putting up that you're not feeding yeah. when you could have spent that money maybe on concrete right. and built another silo? I mean, there's, there's things like everything that we're talking about is in a perfect scenario. Like there's a lot of things right. where, you know, a farmer just has to do what they have to do to get by. Yeah. you know, for a year or two like that. Like, like I understand those type of things, but I'm, I think when you really start putting pencil to paper and say, okay, like what is our shrink loss, you know, when we go above the ball and above the wall, sorry. And what is, uh, what would the upfront cost be to, you know, build another bunker silo so that we don't have to have to do that anymore. You know, I think that's one of these things that, uh, that we really need to sit down this time of year, I guess, and, uh, and pencil out. So. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I want to build on that because you, you, you've highlighted a crucially important point there that we're aware of, but but slips by us. And I'm like you, I have to have a pragmatic approach in terms of what the farm perceives it can afford in fixed costs at that moment in time, aka concrete. But yeah. also we do we do both know situations where things are built up a lot and, and we have material lost. I think one of the points that we don't make enough, Keith, in the industry, and I'd be as guilty as anybody, but I'm, I'm going to say it now, that loss that we see the visual spoilage, there's still material there, but it's not the most digestible material. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and we're coming to your calculation here. And, and when, I, when, when I thought about this, I've realized that what we're really losing is, is digestible climate. So it has a corn meal equivalent, if you like. So in other words, if, if we just said to each other, wow, we could be losing, you know, 15%. This isn't 15%, you know, times what we think the prevailing value of corn silage or haylages fresh weight. This is 15% of whatever the prevailing value of dry shell cornmeal is, because that's that's the type of digestible energy that we're going to need to replace it. And I think then, it, I, I've seen this scenario now for a couple of years on farms. If, if I did that type of, you know, uh, napkin arithmetic that you were talking about, and if I looked at what that loss was in energy, and I amortised that over five or ten years, suddenly you get to a point where you know a, a new bunker wall or a different design or an extra patch of concrete or blacktop somewhere um, makes a lot more sense and suffering that. And that doesn't even get us into the discussion about safety, how awkward it is for people, you know, to, to, to operate at that level. So uh, what I'm really banging the drum for here is that if we look at a plant as, as, as a whole, you've got the digestible stuff and the indigestible stuff. The indigestible stuff gets left behind. So let, let's not look at basing our, our energy losses on what the cost of haters and corn silage is. It's actually much more dramatic than that. It's actually real energy that's digestible. And, and, and that's the kind of nutrient cost that should be used in terms of building a, a cost benefit discussion per se. If we had these losses accrued over five years over this herd size, you know, how could we, you know, get that back? And would we get that payback in five years with extra concrete or black top or bunker wall cost or or, or, or silo stuff or plastic or whatever you want to think about or an ag yeah. bag. I've got guys who have surplus haylage goes into ag bag or surplus 
full silage goes into ag bag because it, it's too dangerous to do anything else and it makes a lot more sense at the time. Yeah, and I know, and I, I, I look at that too, and, and I try to price everything in, in dollars and cents. Like if I, if you as a producer had to go out there and buy that corn silage or buy that haylage, you know, what's it look like? But you raise a really, really interesting point about the replacement. Like what do you need to buy to replace that? Right. Like in corn or like in the sake of haylage, maybe protein or a fiber source or, or something like yeah. that to kind of yeah. extend that. Like that's, that's a that's a pretty good point i know uh, you know it, it there's always a tangible dollar and cents thing at the end of the day we're running a bit you're running a business as a as a producer and i think that we just have to be more aware of where our loss is coming from now with with all that like talking about you know bags and things like that uh what's your opinion on drive over piles I know it's not as common in uh, Canada as maybe you see down in in the U.S., but uh, they are becoming more popular here. And I'm I'm just uh, yeah. Yeah. just yeah. wondering. Yeah, no, um, I, I was going to say something like I like them, but like's kind of not a very useful word, is it? I think what's happened, Keith, is we've evolved into them through necessity. Um, there's still a lot to be said, uh, you know, for a well-managed bunker where you can get the pressure point down on the side of the shoulders. The counter argument to that would be is when the you know, the amount of forage going in has outstripped the height of the bunker and, and two things happen, it's no longer safe to do it and so it never gets done properly. So back to our old friend, waste. Um, wh wh where the pile comes in is it, it gives you a, a, a uniform, you know, side to operate, if you like, to, to get packed down. There, there are certain, you know, rules in terms of slope rules, like one in three to make sure it doesn't get dangerous and you get a, a good packing density, but, you know, uh, the downside to it that I see is is, is twofold, Keith. Um, they're not profound, they're pretty obvious. One is it's usually a bigger footprint, you know, because yeah, uh, how it's going to be. And secondly, just make you smile. Like, you know, when you're starting a bunk, you've always got that ramp piece and you kind of think, I don't know how this ramp piece is going to feed. It's probably half a feed. When I look at a pile, it's like, I've got a lot more ramp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the, the whole thing's <laughs> ramp. <laughs> We laugh at him, but you know, I see a lot like that where I'm thinking, yeah, okay, this was easy to make. We've got a bigger footprint. We can use most of this, but I've got a lot more ramping for the comments than ever thought. Does that make sense? You know, but I mean, on, on, on balance for, for, for our large units, um, they're, they're taking off because you know, you've no, you've no investment in the world. Um, so uh, that, 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 that's not a strong defense, but I think for a lot of people, they're going to work. But again, you know, we, we, we get back to the old chestnut. Of, packing density and then how fast can you get through that and there are piles that are only half used as a corridor you know because the calculations will change in the dynamics but on, on balance when they're done well Keith they're they're, they're no worse they're just different challenges yeah and I uh I see them as a as a means and like sometimes like you said you just need to feed animals so we got to do something with silage and I know I've used it uh in the past is like i always i always hate feeding ramps and i hate feeding at the back of a bunk so right right you yeah. know so you're not, you know, you're it's, not it's never as good right so <laughs> yeah, as the yeah, center so of that pile yeah I, i'm just curiously just an aside you know sometimes i saw one farm that was dedicated rolling from one side to the other so they had a lot of heavy wheels on one side and light wheels on the other and so the packing density and dry metal loss and spoilage was totally different on, on on either side of the pile. You don't see that very often. Most people know you've got to go in different directions, but you'd be amazed what you see out there. You know? so. Well, it's it's funny because I did do a density on a pile one day, and uh, 
on the side where they were dumping was really good. But as soon as they yeah. got over that peak and got to the other yeah. side, they yeah. just were like, it just wasn't getting packed well, enough. Well, human and, nature being what it is and just repetition, you just kind of go so far and, uh, you know, those heavy back wheels don't get there. And if there's weights on the front, that's great. But you, you'll see that quite a lot, my friend. That's an interesting observation. I see that quite a lot as well. More times than I'd expect, but it's just the way we, we are as humans, right? Yeah, and I just kind of want to circle back to profitability, Tony, and yeah. and I just want to talk about like forage quality as it pertains to nutrition. Like, let's kind of shift gears and think about the cow now, yeah. and like what makes a good quality forage. You, you you you've got you've got three three connected issues, I think, really. You've got the actual feed value, what you and I would call the nutrients. Okay. Have we got like a, a good content of energy, a good content of, you know, starch? Is, is the fiber digestible? Is the protein content where he wants it, right? So you've got that package. If it was that easy, that, that, then it would be great. But unfortunately, you know, with silage, you have these other issues. And, and, and the one I would call the kind of umbrella term called palatability. You know, how did the fermentation go? Did the fermentation go the right way? Does it smell kind of nice and sharp and fruity and they want to eat it? Unfortunately, did something go a bit sideways and we maybe got, heaven forbid, some clostridia, particularly inhaled crops that, you know, generate some butyric acid that are going to be a problem for, as far as intakes are concerned, but also, you know, dairy cow metabolism. And then, you know, the, the, the other side of that coin is, that's usually with the wetter crops, the other side of that coin that you and I'll see a bit, Keith, we've talked about is, you know, the fungal spoilage. I don't mind so much here about the moles and mycotoxins. That would be a subject there in its own right, but I think these wild yeast and these rye crops, not just corn silages, but haylage as well, if you have that element of um, aerobic instability. So I think for me, you've got like the feed value, you've got like the hygienic quality, if you want for a better word, you know, that's what, what, what the microbes are, good, bad or indifferent, and you've got the palatability, you know, will the cow like it? And I mean, just, just for your audience to make them smile, uh, again, we'll all know this, but hey, nobody ever researched it because nobody got the grant money, but they did recently in Asia. Uh, cows actually have a better sense of smell than dogs. Dogs have a better sense of smell than humans. Uh, and we've kind of known that from the flame and reaction of animals when they lift the nostrils up and they're, and they're in heat. And even just sometimes when they've had water quality problems that the cows have kind of, you know, reacted to that or even just smelling and drinking other cows' urine. But, you know, people have put this to the test and the number of olfactory humans in the cows' nasal septum is massive compared to dogs and my dog can seek out almost anything. It's just that, you know, um, I, I get the feeling that maybe we um, we underestimate the effects of palatability a, a little bit more than we, 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 we probably should. And we've all had that, you know, forage where the intakes haven't quite been where we wanted to be, but the simple analysis hasn't, hasn't highlighted anything wrong as far as, you know, the analysis could tell us. But the cows are telling us they're not quite up to snuff with it they can't quite eat or don't want to eat as much as we think they should yeah and it's funny you mentioned the yeast thing and yeah. I, I didn't it's relatively maybe not new for you but i think it uh it's more and more apparent now i guess in maybe the last three or four summers or maybe we're just learning more about it and testing for it now but we're seeing a lot more of it uh, yeah. in Ontario. Can you kind of maybe explain some of the detrimental effects of having wild yeast in the in the silage? Yeah, and I think to go back a bit, Keith, to your, to your point there, we're becoming more aware of it. I think it's always been there. We we were unaware of it. I mean, you and I can probably both remember occasions in our career where 
you know, the fires were stable and the GMR got a bit warm, but at that time we didn't have the lab facilities to do the CFU count for the yeast. Now, now we're learning there. And not surprisingly, this, th th this kind of scenario in the field that our clients are working with is a bit like when you look at a bunch of grapes, they've kind of, kind of got that white must on them, which is their natural yeast for the grapes. And, and uh, invisibly, but out there on the haylage crops and the corn silage crops. This is important for people listening, not just the corn silage, haylage could be prone to this as well. They do have an invisible population of wild yeast. Wild yeast tend to, uh, you know, tend to want to grow when, when, when the plant is stressed, but when they can really get going is if they've got access to sugar, okay, and, and oxygen. And if you think about that time when we're kind of cutting things and packing things in, if there's any delays there with residual, residual oxygen and sugar, that can get them going. But there's also, in evolutionary terms, a unique set of wild yeast kids that could use lactic acid, particularly in the presence of oxygen. So we, we also get that challenge if they're brought in. But if we can see a scenario where we've opened um, the, the, the bunk or pile or the bag and we're not getting through it quick enough, uh, or the packing density isn't good enough, then the combination of oxygen okay and lactic acid and sugars together in, in that forage these wild yeast can get going the, the only saving grace for us at the moment is the wild yeast tend to like to be operating at about 14 15 celsius my friend ambient and if it gets colder than that they'll kind of go quiet so i'm not saying you wouldn't see any wild yeast challenges now because once it gets mixed in the tmr the tmr gets dropped in a warm barn it could start to take off again but in yeah. canada you tend to be better feeders than us in terms of multiple feeds a day in, in the states with our labor challenges you know on, on, on one x feeding i can take tmr samples in the morning and i can take them in the evening and i can see an explosion of wild yeast in, in certain bars but so wild yeast ubiquitous they can be knocked out with a citric acid type you know inoculant usage but, but by and large they're with us and been with us forever and a couple of things Rob nutrients, they certainly reduce the net energy of lactation of any forage that they take over because again they go for they go for the digestible nutrients and they take they, they tend to make some compounds that you know are known to depress butter fat, but we don't know what those compounds are. The research is still ongoing. But anytime anybody has a herd where the wild yeast content is high and it stays high in the TMR, you get that aggravating non-stera, non-acidosis, fecal texture is good, cows look pretty good. My, my volume's good, it's 33 kilograms, but my fat went from 3.9 to 3.6, and I have no obvious explanation, and the cows are healthy. And by and large, those would be wild yeast scenarios. Yeah, and I know, like last summer, it's kind of hard to think about last summer when it's, you know, minus 5 degrees Celsius <laughs> out today, but... Right, right. <laughs> but uh, there was lots of incidences where there was a lot of dry cow TMRs heating and, and it seemed yeah. like the, the lactating TMRs seemed to be okay. But then for some reason this last summer, like the dry cow TMRs were just like, they were, they were almost on fire. So I don't know if it was adding uh, water to them that was just kind of exacerbating that or, or what was going on there, but it, it was definitely a thing. And um, it's funny because, you know, towards the end of the summer when we started getting things figured out, you know, we thought it was, could have been just heat, but once we kind of got down going down the track that we kind of knew it was wild yeast, we started increasing the yeast uh, in the diet and it seemed to have a positive response on butterfat test, which is, which was a good little discovery on our part. But yeah, uh, it, it, it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Let's, let's, yeah. 
your audience because you said a couple of things there that I think the industry wasn't aware of. And I'm glad you highlighted it. Yeah, because often for like managing dry dry cow, single dry cow, or, or just you know the, the separate pre fresh close up group, they're often corn, silage, chopped straw based diets which have a pretty high yeah, full yeah. load. And then adding moisture is not contraindicated. It can just make the environment a little bit better. And so, what one thing the industry didn't know much about that you've you've kind of stumbled upon, which is nice, is that those wild yeast can grow and generate a lot of heat in those type of diets. You, you, you hate to throw money at those things, but on the south side of the St. Lawrence, I've I've got into the habit of just routinely talking about you know a pro acid stabilizer because so much is important on the on the transition cow side uh, in terms of trying to keep that cool because you can't take the yeast out once you've got them. A little side note here, Keith, for you and the, and the clientele is um, in terms of mycotic abortions, it wasn't thought because wild yeast weren't supposed to be pathogenic. It wasn't thought that they'd do anything across the centre and, and do some challenges. There's been a couple of recent um, papers in some of the vet journals now that show that, 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 that wild yeast can be indicated into um, you know, mycotic abortions, just just like moles can be. That's kind of a yeah. diversion. Where I wanted to go with this was your, your, your other comment. You know, some of the great work that's been researched stateside by a nice consortium, basically Adam Locke um, uh, and Living Kung and uh, a couple of others uh, have looked at in vitro rumen fluid studies. So they're in a glass jar, but it gives them replicas. In other words, they've got plenty of numbers to work with. Uh, yeah. and they can do this time and time again to repeat the study. They've looked at the effect of inside 12 hours of what a wild yeast could do to um, digest of something simple, like a corn silage fiber or an alfalfa or grass fiber. And, and they found that the MDS digestion can be depressed, you know, within a matter of a few hours down by 10, 15, 20, 25. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, uh, you know, this, this has been well published now in the, in the Journal of Dairy Science. So they actually have a, they actually have a scale now for the, you know, if the number of wild yeast entry in the room fluid get, get to such a number, then we're in the danger zone. So if we can't change that, in other words, if we can't stop using that compromised forage and have to stick with it, just like you said, although it sounds counterintuitive, there are certain rumen specific strains of yeast that can go in feed, you know, that you and your colleagues would have access to, where you could put those in and they would actually re-promote, you know, the MDS digestibility. And one of the one of the cute little subtleties in this um, that was also researched, just on the key smile, Keith, um, the presence of a, a large number of wild yeast in the rumen fluid actually made the pH stay down lower a little bit longer. So in other words, if there was any minor bouts of subacute acidosis on the plant, whatever reason, they would get extended and exacerbated by the wild yeast. So we've always felt the strain-specific in-feed yeast have been real good because what they've been able to do is mitigate um, against the... Uh, the, the exposure to Sarah and minimise that, promote the MDF digestibility, and therein hopefully you know lead, lead to improvement in cow performance. You know, nine times out of ten it does, unless there's something else going on uh, that, that that we're not aware of in that equation. You know. Yeah, and it, it uh, yeah, the, back to your point too about the the dry cow diets with straw and and corn silage is that they're really fluffy too, so the yeah. air can actually get through them, and I oh, think yeah. it just kind of it's like putting a leaf blower on a brush pile like it just yeah it just yeah. it just speeds everything up right so yeah it is and you've got yeah. a fungal population on the straw that's not sterile as well so it becomes yeah. like uh, yeah like you said think about it the oxygen yeah the leaf blower is a good analogy yeah i mean and, and the, the funny thing is keith we haven't paid enough attention to this stateside 
sounds like you're right on top of it there in Canada. But we are going to have to think about it more and more. Now, I've had colleagues call me from Texas saying, hey, you know, everything looks great on paper and I think salts are all there. We've sent this to the lab, it looks good. But this feels warm. What's going on? You get a yeast sample back in there and you know the stuff's full. And if we're, if we're honest, mate, in reality, yeah, people always tell you dilution is the solution or move to another pile. But everybody has that luxury. If this is the corn side you've got, that's what you want. To yeah. Do. That's your dry cow diet. We're just going to have to manage with that. So I've used Pro Passage and uh, I, I've used that in feed juice that you're talking about. And by and large, it, it's got, got us through some difficult times. And I, I think, yeah, like you, last year was a poster child over here for uh, heat, heat challenge TMRs. Yeah. And back to the, the white wild yeast, like, and we were talking about cow smell earlier. Like, can they pick up on that? Uh, yeah. like, like, at, like at what point do they start to turn their nose up to it, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the person who did the best work on this was uh, living Kung with a uh, postgrad student. Um, but also Wisconsin did a bit once as well with a postgrad student. There's a couple of things there. You know, the wild yeast will make all sorts of compounds. Uh, Ethanol is the mo most, most common one. Um, which is not going to phase me in a pint of beer, but but, but cows, <laughs> you know, cows, cows pick it up. Uh, my my guess is Keith, to be honest with you, there's a whole range of compounds that wild yeast are making that cows notice because we've already mentioned their um, you know great sense of smell. We're probably not able to measure them in our in our labs at this current current moment in time. But there's been a nice piece of control work from dairy heifers looking at wild yeast contaminated corn silage. With a, with, with a similar from a similar field split you know one left let to deteriorate uh, and one made perfectly with no wild yeast and, and and that knocked back the dry matter intake on heifers and it was dummy heifers deliberately because you know they just wanted to see what the intakes of the corn size would or would not be and then um oh pat hoffman and the group at wisconsin uh i don't know about, about eight years ago now um did the same thing with the high moisture shell corn pile and you know, ma managed to knock intakes back and they did this with dairy cows and got some you know, dramatic decreases in milk production as well. So I think, you know, um, do we know exactly what's going on? No. Can, can the cows, um, you know, know it's there? Yes. But, you know, the cows have a drive for energy. So even if they're not eating the full 24 kilograms of dry matter, if they're eating 22 and a half at least, uh, they're going for it anyway, you know. Yeah. And like Gordy Jones says, we're in a last bite business. Yeah. So that, that last bite is, you know, that's, that's your top end milk, right? So. Yeah. You know, and, and I hold that thought, Keith, because I think, you know, um, I've put people to sleep for the past hour. But <laughs> if, 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 if we were thinking about the real definition of dairy cow profitability, what you just said there and what Gordy said, yeah, we're in the last bite business. Absolutely. That, that, uh, so I, I'm going to tell you a story that wouldn't happen to your side, but I'm going to make you smile. The audience don't know, but I'm 64 years old now. I'm a young 64, but I'm 64 nonetheless. When I started work, I probably bored you with this in your vehicle before, but when I started work in my 20s, I thought, as the decades go by, you know, the days will get shorter. I'll be rocking out at nine in the morning, get home at three in the afternoon. Now, in fact, quite the reverse. As, as the industry's got more intense and, you know, rightly more focused, uh, I, I find to do some of my work, you know, people tell me that it's all the nutritionist's fault and we're doing everything great on the farm. So I rock out about two or three o'clock in the morning because what I want to see, I want to see in this last bite business, who's got feed in front of them and who hasn't. Now, I've got wise now, I'm using cameras, but in the past few years, putting <laughs> carcass out early in the morning, you would be surprised to find two things. Animals would run out of feed a lot earlier than people had suspected. 
and a huge disconnect between uh, on our side of the, the, the river, the TMR feeding team and, and, and the milking team. So in other words, you know, even if the TMR feeding team got in late and tried to catch you up, the fact that the cows were strolling down the alley and they couldn't get past the gates to, you know, the one that I'm saying, so suddenly cows are waiting for four hours for feed instead of 40 minutes. That's a huge detriment to the cow budget for feeding. So yeah, we are really, it, it's all about the last bite business, right? Yeah. So, uh, and just kind of a final thought here, Tony, I had a question a while ago about, uh, BMR and low lignin alfalfa. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering what maybe your thoughts are on it. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is I'm seeing more, uh, low lignin alfalfa than I am BMR, at least here in Ontario that I feel. And I'm just wondering, um, learning more about it. I fed it on a couple farms now. Um, uh by itself yeah what was your experience how did you go with it it was good i i like cows went up in milk and yeah. and we went back on to a more conventional or a blend and they went back down and it's like yeah you know there might be something to this stuff yeah. but uh there's, there's a real sticker shock on uh <laughs> on the bag of on the bag of alfalfa seed when you buy it <laughs> yeah well it, yeah I, I, I actually will take the alfalfa bit first, then come to the BMR corn size because I think yeah. you know you, you don't have the um, yeah the, the thing is like as you know you've heard before you've heard this before corn size like how much the shell gone or it's big. So there's two considerations. So if I think with alfalfa, you know w w what it says to me and you in the last bite business, particularly as well as the last bite, getting as much digestible forage and getting into cows as possible because that then eases back on the bore in portion that's really where that product lends itself and you know um i i i don't think that we're in the business where you know we won't ever want to be short of digestible forage ndf we don't need all that lignin there's plenty of lignin coming in from other sources so notwithstanding the sticker shock on the bag you know when you relate that increase in performance all the way back down to you know breaking it down tons per acre i think i think it's going to pencil out I, I just think that that sort of crop's got a really good future because there's no real constraints on performance in a well-balanced ration. That's why you get paid the big bucks because you're making the well-balanced ration, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, I, 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 have, I have no objection, you know, to, 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 to this type of alfalfa coming in diet. I think it, it, it is part of our future. I feel, I feel the same way um, about BMR corn silage, but I've got to be careful here because I don't want to get a lot of letters from people with the dog in the game in BMR corn silage. But yeah, originally yeah. the plant breeders put an awful lot of effort into the sober side, and that was the hidden right. It just took a while to work out the, uh, you know, the, the, the starch side. You know, my, my, my take on this, it was a, it, it was a lot, a lot fussier plant. You know, a lot more fragile. So it, it took a while for that starch technique to take place. Uh, that's improved a lot now. But the other part of that story was it, it took a long while to break through to get that starch to be as digestible. Um, if we wanted it now. Now the new new generation BMR corn silages have have, have, have solved that conundrum. But there are there are of course two different types as well. So uh, to me, you know, the original genotype is the one that, that I like and they've improved the starch digestibility a lot. But in in, in terms of performance there, uh, you, you and I are then having to focus on different parameters because 
The fiber digestibility will be a given because the plant breeder put that in. We know what the target dry matter content would need to be. We've got to hope it responds to the heat units in the same way as the other crops do and gets where we want to be. The only other thing we need on that to address is a, is a good kernel processing score so that, that that starch can get to be used by the cows. But um, I, I, I'm in favor of this technology piece just because of the appetite limit constraints that you work in. And you know, as, as people's expectations change, you know, and particularly with the way your 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 milk fat and milk proteins are priced, anything you can do to drive the engine that direction of, of good kilogram yields in a, in, a, in a fixed volume output. I know you're not constrained there this month, but you you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, annual picture, it's a good position to be in, right? That that high digestibility drop. Well, and I think especially on the the hay side, like the alfalfa yeah. side of things, like um, typically I mean, alfalfa isn't that digestible. Exactly. Yeah. So I think you're. You know, you're getting yeah. bang for your buck there. Like, I think a lot of these hay crops, like the grass is very digestible. If you can yeah. get the grass at the right stage of maturity. Right. Um, but with the low lignin alfalfa, like, I I, I don't know. I, I was impressed. It, it, I didn't feed it for very long. They just had one pile of it before they uh, they had to get into uh, another pile or another uh, haylage bunk. But it, it was just, uh, it made me think a lot actually after and, and, uh, look into a little bit more so no i feel the same way as you about the alfalfa side i always smart myself and talk to my clients here when we're growing alfalfa it's like growing like a miniature bush or a tree it's not like grass mdf is it if no if it's the day to want it and you don't want it it's a lot more woody than you and i would like it and boy do the cows notice the difference you know so that's why i think that's why i start with the alfalfa conversation first i think it's eminently more predictable and, and, and defensible that's not to say that bmr corn silage isn't it just has a few more idiosyncrasies. And then the other thing that I didn't mention, and you know, it's a consideration, you know, anytime you have low lignin in corn silage crops, it's a bit more prone to pests and sometimes it can get a bit more of a fungal challenge. But there's more attention to spraying now on corn crops or corn silage compared to just the corn grain. So the industry is moving on all the time, you know. It's not a question of putting fungicide on corn almost anymore. It's like, uh, do we do one application or two? So, no, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I remember, I remember, you know, eight or ten years ago, being down in Virginia, the conversation is, well, are we going to do it now? It's <laughs> when and how often? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Tony, did you have any final thoughts on, you know, just overall profitability of the dairy, like as it pertains to the feed side? I know we touched on a bunch of different things here uh, today, but. Uh, if you had to take like a giant helicopter view of a, of a dairy farm, what are say maybe the top three things to focus on uh, to make that high quality forage? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the, the first thing I always say to, to every client, uh, uh, and it will sound pedestrian, but I actually truly believe it, grow the crops that are right for your farm. You know, we had an earlier conversation, that'd be point one, about the range of land types and topography. So, you know, um, it, it, it doesn't matter. Let's just make a, a comment. It doesn't matter if... Um, you know, the latest Italian ryegrass is high sugar, super digestible and makes brilliant size without trying. If you can't grow it and you, you lose it in the, in the first season to pests or you lose it over winter to kill, it's not for you. You know, choose the crop types that, that, that suit your farm situation that, that you can do well. Then we're right back to where we came in, keepers. We've got those crop types. Harvest them always at, at, at the right harvest window. If you and I wanted to pick a number that would save everybody a lot of heartache, I think we're kind of saying... You know, 34 to 38 for corn silage, that's a great tar target window, okay? As long as you've got those hybrid choices and the land that's su suited to you, get those starch levels up there. I think with those hayless crops, you know, I know it can be dry for towers, 
but you want to avoid the clostridium, so you want to be above 35% bimelic. You don't want to be too dry, so you can't back it. So what? 35, you know, to 45, and then you know, all, all I would do is, is think then about that packing density conundrum. I still think you highlighted it early on. I think it's what, what, what one of the weak links in the chain and where we can get a lot better. And remember, it's not just about tractor weight or tractor numbers. It's about people and their commitment, but it's also about the thickness of packing layer and how quickly we can we can get that done. It, it, it sounds awfully pedestrian, but all we're doing in those steps is we're projecting, attempting to minimize you know, the, the loss of digestible dry matter so we keep as much of the bunk as possible. And of course, I didn't state the obvious one, which would be number four. You know, it, it, you got to go for the right growth stages. Don't let things get particular. People like you, the professionals, you know, can always find a little bit of indigestible MD if you need to tinker it in with a little bit of top straw. What we don't want is for pharma providers a bunk full of it, and then you've got to find a way. <laughs> I can't use this. What am I going to dilute it out with? Now, Mr. Farmer, you've got to buy a trail load of, um, I don't know, soya bean holes, for want of a better word, yeah? Yeah. yeah. In the corner. It all hinges on forage quality, if you ask me. Yeah, and I mean that's I think that's our challenge going forward in the dairy industry is uh, especially with the way like down in the U.S. like the price isn't like the the price isn't always good down there like the no. it seems like there's shorter peaks and lower valleys or yeah. longer valleys sorry um, but here in yeah. Canada too you know I think just farmers are pushed a little bit tighter than they have been in the past and the way to cheapen up a ration is feed more forage and the way to feed more forage is you've got to cut it. I would say on the early side Absolutely. of everything, just to make, like you said, get that NDF digestibility yeah. and yeah. Uh, you'll see it. There's a direct relation to your feed bill. So, you yeah. know, if you have really high quality forages, you know, we're, you're just going to have to purchase less canola or soy or corn or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty well documented. Now I've said, I've said, you, I never one up, but I'm glad you said that. There's a, there's a very good relationship now between, um, you know, the return on investment in the feed costs and, and, and the digestibility of the ration, which then relates right the way back to the digestibility of the forage base. It, it, it's pretty well elucidated now by your universities and our universities as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a clear link. Yeah, these are some pretty uh, impressive animals now with the amount of milk that they can they can push out and uh, they just got to, it's got to come in from the other end too. So yeah. Uh, with that, Tony, I just want to say thanks for uh, joining us on the DFD podcast this week, and uh, I really appreciate your insights. And I hope uh, hope you're staying well uh, and warm there in Syracuse. Yeah, Keith, uh, always a pleasure. So I haven't seen you personally for a few months. I think we know the reason why. I wouldn't be allowed yeah. to. <laughs> but uh, I wish you and your family all the best. And uh, everybody who's listening, uh, please stay safe. Please stay warm. Please stay healthy. Everybody have a great 2020, 2021. And I look forward to seeing you all sometime when I can. And Keith. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Feel free to edit out what you don't want. I won't be. <laughs> no problem, Tony. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Willie. Thanks again for listening to the DFD podcast. If you would like to have further discussions about the topics we talked about on this show, please contact me, Keith Schweitzer. I have left my contact information in the show notes. I would also like to say thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Nogueira. For future updates on topics and guests, please follow me on Twitter, at Keith Schweitzer.